When we are converted, God doesn't uh, shake hands and say, see you in heaven. Because conversion is the beginning of the most wonderful and glorious life imaginable. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, His most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I turn to you and I ask for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to pass on everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be very simple and clear. I ask that this be a life-changing word and a word that brings you pleasure and great honor and glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the purpose of conversion? If anybody asked you that, would you have a quick answer? Peter says, 1 Peter 3, 15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer to those who ask you the reason of your faith. And if a person asked you, what is the purpose of being converted? Let me tell you, two things. One, to make you fit for heaven. And second, to make you fit to receive a reward that you would get at the judgment seat of Christ. Every person, every Christian is called to come into his or her inheritance. Some do and some don't. Those that do receive a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Those who don't are saved by fire and lose their reward. Well, this means that you need to be aware of teaching. And we're going to go into teaching today. Very important word. I realized as I was speaking in the first service, and as you probably know, I basically preached this sermon twice. It's not always exactly the same, but right in the middle of the first sermon, I thought to myself, if this were to be the last sermon I ever preach, I would be very, very pleased 
because I would leave on deposit a legacy that I could be very happy with. And I hope you'll see why as I get into this. Now, to make one fit for a reward to be received at the judgment seat of Christ, it means living the Christian life so that it pleases God. But it will also be, become obvious you have a new enemy when you get saved. Are you aware of this? You see, until you were saved, according to Paul, you were blinded by the God of this world, lest you see the gospel of the glory of Christ. The devil doesn't want you to see that. Jesus is the devil's arch enemy. And so all these years, you were blind. And he was very happy for you to be blind to the glory of Christ. But once you cross over from death to life, you become his enemy. And you need to be aware that you've got an enemy, the devil. Have you ever wondered why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the word evil in the Greek means the evil one. It is an acknowledgement that you have an enemy, and you should pray this every day. Well, Paul introduces this passage with the word therefore. Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Why therefore? Well, you go back, and as we saw last time, Paul wants all these Colossian Christians to come into full assurance of understanding. Full assurance. The Greek word, pleroforia. It is the immediate and direct witness of the Holy Spirit that gives you full assurance. It bypasses the need for reason. You could actually say, that pleroforia can be given to you as a brain bypass surgery. He passes your brain. Because using your mind to conclude that you're saved because of the premise, all who believe on Christ are saved, I believe on Christ, therefore I'm saved. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But the full assurance is when God bypasses the need for that reasoning and you just know. And it's the most wonderful thing of all. And that's what Paul wants for these Colossians. Well, he wants them to come into full assurance, and he takes notice that they've had a good beginning. He says, I'm absent in body, but with you in spirit. What he means is, by the Holy Spirit, he is able to see just how they are. You could call Paul a building inspector. And he says, I think you're in pretty good shape. And so it's a good thing. And he notes they've had this good beginning that they have received. Notice this word. They have received Christ Jesus. You see, therefore, as you have received Christ. You see, you cannot receive something unless it has been offered to you. And you can say no. You can say yes. Well, they received this. Maybe you don't need this question put to you, but I will ask, have you? received Christ Jesus the Lord. You can reject him. In fact, John 1, 12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he the authority to become sons of God. And by the way, there were those who didn't. Because John 1, 11 says, 
he came into his own, this is Jesus, came into his own, the Jews, and never forget, Jesus was a Jew. And he came to his own, and his own received him not. When you think about it, you ask, well, I have received him. Why have I received him? Think about it for a moment. Why did you receive Jesus? Do you think it's because you're smarter than others? You're better? You're more worthy? Look, there are other people smarter than you. They haven't received him. There are people better than you. They haven't received him. How come you did? Do you know the answer? Well, in John 1.12, he gives you the answer. As many as received him today, to them gave he the power to become sons of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the man, a will of man, not of the flesh, born of God. That means they were born again, born of the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, we call it regeneration, is what enables you to believe. We're born dead in trespasses and sins. How would we know to believe unless we've been given life? God does this. And so the fact that you are a Christian, you owe it to God. You don't deserve it. And the result is you should be a very thankful person. And so a person receives what he has been offered. Well, we've seen what enabled them. Jesus said, no one can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him. But now that you've been converted... The question is, what next? As I said, God doesn't say, well done, see you in heaven. Oh no, it's the beginning of a relationship with him. And so after conversion, what next? Well, that's what these verses today show. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in faith and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, what we have here, two things that you should do and two things that you should know. I want you to understand this. Two things you should do, two things you should know. Say it with me. Two things you should do Two things you should know. One more time. Two things you should do. Two things you should know. Well, what are the two things you should do? He says, walk in faith and walk in gratitude. And the two things you should know, know your doctrine and know the real enemy. Now, Paul's point here is God saved you. He gave you faith. What do you do now? Do you jump ship? Do you start doing something different now that you're a Christian? No, he says, you walk in him. To walk in him means to keep affirming the way he saved you. This is so important. You see, the devil wants you to get off the rails by turning from faith and get you to turn to good works. You say, well, surely God wants us to live good works. Oh, yeah, uh, you walk in faith and you will. 
But what happened was that the enemy and those who infiltrated the church of Colossae, and it's called the Colossian philosophy. It's dangerous. And he wanted to get these Christians off the rails. So you now walk by faith. And here's the point. You walk in him, that means you keep affirming what saved you and the way you were saved. You never outgrow the way you were saved. For example, the publican said in the parable of Jesus, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, when you ask for mercy, that means you've got no bargaining power. Uh, God can give or withhold mercy and be just either way. And so this is the way you were saved. You didn't snap your finger as if to say, God, you have to save me because you know who I am. I'm somebody important. <laughs> Don't ever think that. It is by the mercy of God that you're saved. And you pray, God, be merciful to me. That's the way you're saved. See, but RT, we surely don't do that from then on. Oh, yes, you do. Read Hebrews 4.16, written to Christians. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. You see, you never, ever outgrow asking God for mercy. Maybe this is one of the reasons you're not getting your prayers answered. Have you been guilty of rushing into the presence of God and you ask for this and this and this? You want to know what's in it for me? What, what will you do for me? No. The throne of grace has a built-in protection so that we don't do that. The first thing you do is ask for mercy. Now, this is the point. Just as you receive Jesus Christ, so Walk in him. You walk by faith. So uh, Paul's point, God doesn't change our focus away from Jesus Christ. Um, you don't drop or substitute faith for something else. As a matter of fact, Paul raised this question to the Galatians who were doing just that. They were being told they should go into the law because of the same kind of evil people got into the church of Galatia and wanted them to go back to the law. And Paul says... Question, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? But you see, that's what the devil wants you to do. And so here's Paul's point. The faith that saved you is the same faith you must live by. Paul said, Galatians 2.20, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And so here's the thing. It is faith plus gratitude. That's it. You walk by faith because he says, abounding in thanksgiving. You go from faith to faith. And so faith plus nothing except gratitude. So Paul does not say, well, now that you've received Christ, here's a different book of rules you're supposed to live by. He does not say, well, now that you're a Christian, now start following the law. You know, why wouldn't that be good? I'll tell you why. It will cause you to focus on yourself and on works, and you'll get your eyes off Jesus. And be, when you start focusing on your works, and then you begin to ask, wait, am I in or am I not? You know, there are those who check their spiritual pulse all the time. 
they think. Am I in or am I not? As if you need to do that. Well, if you focus on works, you're going to do it. But as long as you keep your eyes right on Christ, you see, you're there. That's the way you were saved. Don't change. That's Paul's point. Don't change. Well, faith. What is it? The answer is believing God. You believe the promise. You accepted the offer of salvation. And uh, you believe in a person, Jesus. And to receive Christ is to be in Christ. Many years ago, when I first went to Westminster Chapel, I think the second year I was there, I decided to preach through Hebrews chapter 11. You will know, many of you, that's the great faith chapter of the Bible. And the reason I bring that in is because once you are a Christian, you qualify to be like those in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, when you read Hebrews 11, and it talks about Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, Joshua, you think, oh, these great men, I could never do that. I want you to know that you can. These were people. These were ordinary people. What made them great was their faith. And look what God did with them. And I remember when I first decided to preach from Hebrews 11, I thought, what I need is a good definition of faith. And well, that's just the way I'm wired. I just wanted to know what, what's a good definition. And those were the days when Dr. Mark Lloyd-Jones was still alive, and he was my tutor, he was my mentor. Uh, we were like father and son. He had two daughters, no sons. I was his son. And we were riding together in the Cotswolds. And I said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I'm going to be preaching from Hebrews. I'd like a good definition of faith that will carry me through. What would you say? He thought, hmm, let me think about it. The next day, phone rang. Hello. Voice on the other end said, believing God. There's your definition. And, you know, I've thought about that. That was over 40 years ago. You can't get better than that. That's what faith is, believing God. And so when you are saved by faith, the next thing you do is by faith. There are two kinds of faith, by the way. Saving faith, that's what makes you fit for heaven. And persistent faith, that's what makes you fit for a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And so Hebrews 11, all those people that did great things by faith, this isn't how they got to be saved. No, they were saved. This is what they accomplished by faith. I used to say to the members of Westminster Chapel, I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if there would be, let's just say, 300 people here that would resolve to be just like those in Hebrews chapter 11. That was my ambition for all the members of Westminster Chapel. And I would hope that maybe somebody here, you would say, yes, 
I would like to be exactly like that. Well, here's the thing. Two things you should do, two things you should know. Two things you should do, walk in faith and walk in gratitude. Two things you should know, know your doctrine and know the real enemy. Well, now, now that you're a Christian, two things you should do. First, walk by faith. You, that means you're going to do what Enoch did. He had this testimony before he pleased God, before he was translated, that he pleased God. And then the writer goes to say, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Would you like to please God? i tell you how to do it. Faith. That's what does it. And then the writer goes on to say, he that comes to God must believe that he is there and that is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Are you seeking God? Are you seeking his face? I can tell you, he's promised. He has promised that you will be rewarded. He will not turn you down. Don't give up, ever. Well, you look, look at these men and women in Hebrews chapter 11. What they did, they turned their world upside down by faith. Well, walk by faith. But second, walk in gratitude. And the text calls for it. As a matter of fact, the writer Paul refers to thanks all the time throughout this epistle. He's always bringing up thanks. It pops up all the time. And here's the way it comes in this verse. Rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, here we find, to walk in gratitude, I want to explain something to you today that I hope you'll never forget. You know, the expression is moderation in all things. Is it possible that we could come up with something where no moderation would be required, that you can't do it enough? Let me tell you, there's one thing you cannot overdo. You know what it is? To be thankful. It is impossible to overdo being thankful. And so he says, abounding in thanks. Uh, what about this perfect passive participle that's in the Greek? Let me explain what that means. Whenever you have a perfect, a perfect passive participle, it means it's in the past, it has happened, it's done. For example, you have that in these words, rooted, built up, established. In other words, he doesn't give you a command to root. He says, you were rooted. It's just done. He doesn't give you a command build up. He says, you are built up. It's done. He doesn't give you a command to establish. He said, you are established. It's done. When you think about that, of all the things that God has already done, shouldn't you be thankful? I often say, how to know whether you have heard the gospel. You remember what I've said? How to know you've really heard the gospel? It's when it seemed too good to be true. 
until it was too good to be true, you haven't heard it yet. It's, it's amazing. It's faith plus nothing. But then, now that you're a Christian, what you do is to show thanks that you've been saved. And we ought to be thankful for this. And so the only requirement, the only requirement Paul is putting now, now that you're saved, is to be thankful. I've come up with three principles when it comes to gratitude. And I need to tell you that a number of years ago, I just figured it out a few minutes ago, it was 33 years ago. It was in 1986 at Westminster Chapel. We were preaching through Philippians. Well, now we're doing Colossians. I never did Colossians until just a few months ago. But in those days, they did Philippians. It took two years in Philippians. And when we got to chapter 4, verse 6, here's what Philippians 4, 6 says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Make your requests be made known to God. Now, I've been preaching for over 60 years. What I'm getting ready to tell you has only happened one time in my ministry. And that is that I preached myself under conviction. I didn't really say anything. In fact, it was what I hadn't even planned to say that much. When I looked at these words with thanksgiving, and I'm right in the middle of this sermon, all of a sudden, it was like my whole life came before me. And it was like God was showing me one thing after another that he had done for me, and I hadn't said thank you. And I felt horrible. I felt horrible. And I thought, Lord, help me to get this sermon finished. I couldn't wait to finish it. I couldn't wait to get it over with. That's the way you feel when you hear me preach. You think, how much longer is it going to be? <laughs> well, I was experiencing exactly that. And I said, when this sermon's over, I'm going to go into my vestry. I'm going to shut the door. And I am going to repent like I have never repented. And I did exactly that. I got into there. I'll never forget. I said, Lord, I am so sorry. I won't go into the detail, maybe on another occasion, but one thing after another, he just said, look, are you thankful, R.T.? Well, Lord, you know I'm thankful. He said, well, you didn't tell me. Well, Lord, you know my heart. You know I'm thankful. You didn't tell me. And I was so convicted, and that day I resolved to be a thankful man. I made a vow that I would thank God for something every day. And here's the way I do it. I go through my journal. I did it this morning. I go through what was yesterday. I go through all the events. And you know what? It takes about 10 seconds. But I just thanked him for everything of yesterday. And I've done this every day for 33 years. It doesn't take long. About three years ago, Mayo Clinic, which is a respected medical institution in America, 
they came up with a conclusion based upon science. Are you ready for this? Thankful people live longer. Now, if that doesn't get you going, I don't know what will. Yeah. And I've learned this. And I've lived by these three principles in my ministry. God loves gratitude. And God hates ingratitude. And gratitude must be taught. I had to teach it to Westminster Chapel. God loves gratitude. God hates ingratitude. Gratitude must be taught. Would you say those with me? God loves gratitude. God hates ingratitude. Gratitude must be taught. You see, people forget. And this is why Paul is teaching it. Overdoing it, you could say. Abounding in thanksgiving. And I guarantee you, you will never be the same again. I had this thought only today. I don't know how the people at Westminster Chapel look back on my 25 years, but I know how I wish they did. And I know how I would love you to remember us because the day will come that I'll be in heaven. I hope we can come back next year. Don't know. We'll see. But here's the thing. I cannot think of anything more heartwarming than if you said of me, he taught us to be thankful. That R.T. taught us to be thankful. I would urge you, before today's over, thank God for three things. Louise and I do this every night. We pray the Lord's Prayer every night, and we thank God for at least three things for the same day. You won't have any trouble finding three things. Do it every day. Be a thankful person. Well, should we not be thankful for such grace? But now, two things you should know. And look at it. And how the Holy Spirit has worded this. He says, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then he said that, wondering whether you picked up on what I just said. Did you notice those words, established in the faith? So easy just to go right by that. Have you any idea how important this is? The faith? This is of crucial importance. And I wonder if, if you already know what I'm getting at. Why is it important? The faith. Why not just faith? Why the faith? Well, let me help you. Do you realize that Her Majesty the Queen is the supreme governor of the Church of England? A defender of the faith. I don't know what you think of Anglicanism, but are you aware of the 39 articles of the Church of England? It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get better than that. That's what they're supposed to believe. And the faith of the Church of England, those 39 articles, 
But a few years ago, I wish it weren't true. But as much as I admire Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, in many ways I admire him. He's lovable in many ways. But you know what he said a few years ago? He's the future king. He said he would be the defender of faith, not the faith. Oh, please. In that moment, he opens Pandora's box and all the religions get in. Whether you're Muslim or you believe in Confucius or even if you're an atheist, even an atheist can have faith. Not in God, but in themselves and whatever. So sad. Listen, don't say, I believe in faith. It is the faith. And let me tell you why. You see, the faith refers to, and I'm going to give you an expression now. I used it once in this series already, but here it is. Propositional revelation. Propositional revelation. Say it with me. Propositional revelation. One more time. Propositional revelation. Now, you may not know what you just said, but I'll tell you what. Revelation refers to what is revealed. Propositional refers to the fact that there are certain propositions that we believe. For example, Jesus is God. That's a proposition. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's a proposition. God is holy. God is sovereign. Proposition. Jesus was raised from the dead. That's a proposition. And so these articles of faith, these propositions, because this has been revealed to us. Now, here's the point. There is a body of truth already designed and thought through by God himself. He's already done it. So you don't need to go outside the Bible and decide what you want to believe. It's all there. And you see, this is what the church has stood for for hundreds of years. We believe in these things that are said about him. Propositions that we affirm. But when you take that away, then you have cut the jugular vein. This is why the faith is so important. And this is where the stigma is. You know, in the next to last book in the Bible, Jude. Jude says, right at verse 3, he said, I wanted to write a treatise on salvation, but God says, no, you need to write a word that will cause people earnestly to contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. You see, here's the thing. The Colossian philosophy was to say that you need more than what Paul taught you. That Paul has let you down. And the Gnostics, it comes from a Greek word, gnosis, that means knowledge. They said, we have knowledge that will make Christianity better than ever. Well, you think, well, is anything better than this? Well, I would want it. But the Gnostics, you see, it was a lie. It was the devil, Satan. He wants to get you away from exactly what the Bible teaches. And he's been trying to do that for centuries. And I'm sorry to say that in our generation, he's getting so close that if people believe 
that it's just faith. Christianity ceases to be the Christian faith. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, our doctrine doesn't change. The next generation that comes, they will not improve on anything that was taught in this generation because what we taught here is what the next generation must believe. And the reason, one of them, one of them, that Jesus hasn't come back again is because he's gaining more sons and daughters of people that will believe. And these people will be given this gospel, but if the next generation hears something else, it won't be the Christian faith. And I would plead with you on bended knee, never to be ashamed of this. And so Paul says, just as you were taught, don't add to it. How will you say by faith? How do you live by faith? But then what are things you should know? Your doctrine and know your enemy. You see, every generation has its stigma by which the believer's faith is tested. And that's because we don't like a stigma. The word stigma means offense. It mainly comes down to this embarrassment. If you want to understand the word stigma or offense, what's the offense of the gospel? It's kind of embarrassing. You see, your friends will say, are you serious? You're a Christian? Yeah. Really? They look at you as like you're off your head. And it's kind of embarrassing when you say, well, I actually believe in the infallibility of the Scripture. You don't mean it. Really? I didn't know anybody believed that anymore. That's where this generation is right now. I would say to you, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the faith. And that's what he's saying here. It's the faith. It matters. Well, says Paul, the Judaizers want to change you. These Colossians who've accepted a, a, a false teaching, they want to change you. And it's because of your new enemy, Satan. And this is why we read, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, the devil, and not according to Christ. You see, your enemy, let me tell you who your enemy is. It's not that person at work that gives you trouble. It's not your boss. It's not somebody jealous of you. You say, oh, that, he's, she's my enemy. No, 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 no. Behind all these people that get your attention, your enemy is the devil. Resist him. And so here's the way he put it, how the enemy works. Three things. One, he uses people. Second, he uses methods. Third, he uses knowledge. 
And so he uses people. Look how Paul put it. See that no one, no person uh, takes you captive. And there's the message. Sorry, there's the, the method. He says they want to control and take you captive. Here's a good test whether the devil is succeeding. Listen carefully. Are you in bondage today? Are you? Are you in bondage? Not good. Well, the Spirit of the Lord is there's liberty. But if you're in bondage, Satan has already done a job on you. He says they want to take you captive. And they use knowledge. And you might like to know that the word philosophy is in the Bible one time, and this is it. He says, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy. What's the point? Anything to get you away from the faith. The faith. And people who major in philosophy, they're treading on dangerous ground. I don't say that there haven't been those who have been great apologists for the faith. And they're rare. They're rare. But be careful. Don't ever be ashamed of Scripture. And so how reliable are these people, asked Paul. Well, first he says they give you empty deceit. As we saw last week, uh, plausible arguments. Here's the danger. The arguments they use are plausible. You think, well now, hmm, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Well, that makes sense. And before you know it, the devil has you thinking other than Holy Scripture. And so their arguments are plausible, but reject anything contrary to the way you were saved and you live by the same faith. And so what happens is demonic rulers and authorities get in. He calls them the elemental spirits of the world. It's the polar opposite to the gospel because he says it's against what you were taught in Christ against what is according to Christ. Well, I've got to close. I would say to you, do you know what you believe? How important is it? Here's a hard question, and I don't mean to be unfair. Would you die for what you believe? The day will come, I guarantee it, when many people who profess faith in Christ will be challenged. And you show then how much you believe it. And if it's not good enough to die for, it's not good enough to live for. Don't be ashamed that Jesus is God. Don't be ashamed that he's God in the flesh. Don't be ashamed that his blood satisfies God's justice. Don't be ashamed of the infallible word of God. Because here's what will happen. When you stand before God one day, and in the meantime you have uh, compromised, when you stand before God, you will be so ashamed. But if you will be unashamed of this gospel, You'll stand before God 
And he will look at you and say, good, well done. I want that more than I want anything in the world.